Hello, everyone. Um, I'd like to welcome you to the Warwick Arts Centre to start with, and I'd also um, like to welcome you to the first Writers at Warwick um, of this academic year. And uh, we're delighted to have Michelle Roberts to launch the season for us. Um, we're very lucky to have Michelle come down. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, as is always the case with um, sort of very um, popular and sort of respected writers, she doesn't really need an introduction. Um, but I will just mention that, you know, she's the author of uh, 12 very highly acclaimed novels, um, including The Looking Glass and Daughters of the House, which won the W.H. Smith Literary Award and was also uh, shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Um, and she's also published um, short stories, poetry, and uh, other genres of, of book and even um, film, too. Um, her latest book is her memoir, pa Paper Houses, which she'll be reading from today for us, um, which kind of gives us her experience of 1970s London. I'll let uh, Michelle sort of introduce that to you. Um, but we're absolutely sort of delighted to have her here. And I'm especially happy to introduce her to you because I, I, when I was an undergraduate, I actually went to see um, Michelle Roberts read. And, uh, you know, when I was sort of a little 18-year-old and not really knowing very much and I was very traumatized about some kind of question about feminism which I asked Michelle and she gave me such a comforting answer that I was you know able to kind of continue with my life so uh, it, was, uh, <laughs> it was it was very nice but um, I'd like to uh, now just pass over to Michelle and she's now going to read to us um, from Paper Houses and uh, after she's done that reading um, she'll be very sort of happy to take questions from from you all so uh, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you very much for that beautiful introduction. Apparently the answer I gave was something like, oh, you'll get, you'll, you'll get it all sorted out sooner or later. <laughs> I, I, I did, yeah. <laughs> That's better than being like the Pope, isn't it, and sort of saying, thou shalt not. <laughs> anyway, I'm very grateful to the Warwick Arts Centre for inviting me to be with you tonight and be talking to you. And I'm very grateful to all of you for, for coming to be with me and... Uh, I really love meeting readers and lounging around talking about writing and reading is my chief experience of bliss. Other kinds of bliss come and go, but um, <laughs> the bliss of reading and writing and talking seems constant. So thank you for being here. Uh, I wrote Paper Houses because my editor said I ought to write a memoir. And I thought, blimey. And then I thought, well, I would actually like to reclaim the 1970s, which I lived through as a young woman, because I think they're very trashed at the moment. Um, maybe they're sentimentalised in one way because of glam rock and certain kinds of fashion and David Bowie, and I was into all that. But they were also a time when um, radical pol politics burst forth, and I think they do get trashed. And I think feminism in particular gets trashed. And Well, I know we always have to reject our mothers and fight against them and remake the world differently. Um, but I do feel sad when 1970s feminism, which did so much to help young women feel bolder and braver about our desires to give to the world and to care for each other and to get better health care and you know, better education and, and so on and so forth, um, gets misunderstood. There's a 
there's a kind of wonderful caricature of the feminist around today. I mean, if you mention feminist to young women, they kind of reel backwards, going, ah! And apparently the feminist is this sort of hairy, armpitted, very ugly person, we can't call her a woman, um, who, who loathes men and uh, would like to cut all their willies off and certainly doesn't like young women and is a Puritan and doesn't like pleasure and has no sense of humour, that's the main thing. So this memoir is partly a sort of homage to um, the fact that in the 70s, like all our mothers of whatever generation, <laughs> we larked about and we were carnivalesque and we believed in joy. And I think that's always been true of, of mothers and the daughters have to sort of rediscover that. And of course, my kind of 70s feminism, it, it did wrestle with men a lot. But even though I think some of the time we went up on high mountains and became very Amazonian, and there were moments when I cut my hair off, and I did wear dungarees. I confess, I confess, I wore dungarees, um, and no makeup. And my father got very upset. But there was this love for men as comrades, which was very important because we were socialist feminists. So even when we were what we called struggling with men, which usually meant going to bed with them and then sort of saying things like, "Come on, you've got to help wash up." It was called struggling. <laughs> And I think apparently young women nowadays also do this. Apparently young women nowadays actually go to bed with men as well. I'm amazed and shocked. And they also say to the young men, come on, you've got to help with the washing up. So that's feminism, whether or not you know it. Uh, we also believed in a sort of international sense of feminism. So, you know, women's health around the globe mattered. Um, clitoridectomy mattered. Uh, the lack of abortion in Northern Ireland mattered. And the tragedy, I think, for us was that in the 80s, Thatcher's version of uh, life triumphed. And the, the Thatcherite version of feminism is the one that I think is still the caricature in the media, which is kind of what I call shoulder pads feminism. It's absolutely bourgeois. It's all about, you know, get a job in the city, put on some shoulder pads, get a nanny. Um, if, if you're really well off and well connected, write a silly column moaning about men and how stupid they are. Our feminism wasn't like that. So this is quite a polemical book on that level. But it's also a book of, uh, of my struggle, uh, not just about the washing up, but to, to, to find my way out of, to find my way out of a world in which uh, women were not thought much of at all. It was a Catholic uh, middle-class world women's bodies were a problem, they were disliked, um, women were al not allowed to have brains or minds. Our desires to give to the world uh, could only be done within very certain narrow kinds of uh, circuits. So the several stories in this book also include my own story, which is the story of a young woman coming to town and trying to make her way and discovering she wants to write and how she went on doing it. So, because I have to call her she, she's so far away, I'll just read you a little bit from the beginning. Uh, the, the book begins when I'd just left university and I'd come to London and I'd found a rented room in Regent's Park at the top of a house for three quid a week. I didn't have anything to eat because I didn't have a tin opener. Um, but I was very excited, I'd, I'd hit London who was that I, that young woman of 21? 
I reconstruct her. I invent a new me, composed of the girl I was, according to my diaries, my memories and the gaps between them, and the self remembering her. She stands in between the two, a third term. She's a character in my story and she tells it too. She's like a daughter. Looking back at her, thinking about her, I mother myself. I listen hard to her silences, the gaps between her words, the cries battened down underneath the surface of her sentences. I sympathise with her ardour, her desperation to read, to learn how to think, to contribute something to the world. How tender, amused and exasperated I feel towards her snobbery, shyness, self-consciousness, priggishness, guilt. She writes her diary so self-critically, suffers so much, berates herself so harshly for suffering and then for writing about it. When she's not rhapsodising about books and nature, she's fierce, intolerant of adults' intolerance of youth, enraged when she feels patronised. She wants adventures. She has come to London in the time-honoured way to have them. Not to make her fortune, though. She scorns that. She intends to become a writer, is determined to publish a novel before she's 30, and she expects to be poor. Yes, I was unrealistic in my would-be bohemianism, she says to me, but at least I had ideals. And in my own muddled way, I did get involved in radical politics. It's all right, I shout back at her. I'm not here to judge you. So on my quest to live differently, I lived in communes. And this was also because I was very poor, um, struggling to be a writer. I didn't have the classic uh, middle-class jobs that my education would have let me get. So I had lots of um, part-time jobs, very badly paid. And I always used to end up just staying up all night to write and then uh, going off to do whatever I was doing in the daytime to, to pay the bills. And I'll just read you a little description from, um, I think this is 1975, a long time ago. Um, one of the communes I lived in was in Camberwell. And it was a big house owned by this Oxford Don. And he was letting, out, letting it out to all these Marxist, feminist, carnivalesque, ultra-leftist people. I think he thought it was an investment, but we used to give him a very hard time because when he came to collect the rents, we'd harangue him about being a rentier. Um, what I loved was doing the garden, and backing onto our garden was that of Mr. Salmon, an old cockney who seemed to have lived here since at least the 18th century to be history incarnate. He leaned over the fence and watched me mark out and dig a vegetable patch, fertilising it with horse shit from the local police station stables and with lime. Of course, we were all against the police. We'd you know, rise against them on demos on a Saturday, and then I'd trot around on a Sunday and say, got any horse shit? <laughs> Mr. Salmon pointed to his walnut trees and described how they'd once formed part of an orchard. The farm on this spot was long gone. He told me about Camberwell Green's dairy, how Londoners used to come out here to buy milk and eggs, how cows used to graze on the green in the olden days, how it had been used as a mass grave in the last war. When you walk on the green, you're walking on layers of human bones. He was a dedicated gardener. He called plants subjects and talked about them as though they were people. Gentle and funny, he accepted me in a calm and unquestioning way. He reminded me of my beloved Londoner grandfather, Grandpa, who smoked a pipe, cracked jokes, 
enchanted me by accepting my gifts of drawings and placing them in his inside pocket over his heart and grew rows of sweet peas in his little back garden. I recorded Mr Salmon's words and later put them into the novel I'd begun writing. I wanted to remember him and putting him into a book seemed a good way to do it. Mr Salmon died a couple of years after I moved into the district and his house was sold. People die, but their words go on, as long as someone's listened to them. The words last inside our memories of each other. We knot ourselves into the past, further and further back. We push through death. Story loops back into story. We encounter the dead. Today, my mother tells me tales of her two grandmothers, Therese and Pauline, and they come alive for me, and the room seethes with dead people talking. That's what history means to me, listening to the voices of the dead, feeling connected to the dead, that they're still here with us now. Writing means bearing witness to other people's stories as well as my own, searching for those lost others. It begins in infancy. The mother vanishes and the child calls out for her. And so speech begins. The child tries to lure her mother back tries to capture her in a net of words, angry and passionate and tender. The child weaves her myth of belonging and not belonging. The web of words breaks. The child starts telling another story. She searches for and finds mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, ancestor, neighbour, acquaintance. She makes them up. Finding means inventing. Loving people means receiving their stories. Hearing their stories makes you love them. I've shuddered all over with delight when doing research and I've heard voices swim up out of 17th century inquisition records, out of 18th century law records. Ordinary people talking, their stories are not lost. Writing, the transcripts of the authorities trying them in lay or ecclesiastical courts has preserved their voices. Here they are, talking to me. I become their witness. That love of language from the past took root in secondary school when for English O-level we read extracts from John Evelyn's diary. I couldn't believe it. A man from the 17th century was talking to me and telling me what he thought about gardening, his son Dick's death, the ladies of Venice in their high-heeled patterns. No wonder I went on to study the history of the English language at university. The voices of the dead sprang alive and one form of the Old English language evolved into another Middle English one. And with a fair bit of struggle and slog, I could try to understand all those different languages. No wonder I loved my chance encounters with people in the streets in London. Strangers afforded me moments of intimacy, let me glimpse their lives. I cherished these meetings. They seemed pure, not filled with my need and hunger for love, I still couldn't always approve of those. Londoners' turns of phrase delighted me. So original, deft, witty. Their tales fell on me like showers of presents. The people I met by chance and talked to then walked away or got off the bus, but their words stayed with me. And then later on I wrote them down. My casual encounters with Londoners made me feel connected. Not an alien outsider, but part of the human race. People gave me tiny vignettes of their lives and I carried these home with me and treasured them. These short conversations broke me out of myself 
and joined me into the great web of the city. First of all, the words were in the streets, and then they moved into the house, into my diary. Um, I think I might stop there, actually. And sure? Let's have a conversation, because... Um, I remember being a student and how after about 12 minutes you started going <laughs> So um, I hope you won't do that. And one way is to make sure you talk to me. <laughs> and I won't do that either. <laughs> so I'll stop there. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for that. It was fantastic to kind of hear some of those, those memories. I wonder if I could just start the conversation off uh, while people are th thinking of questions by just asking you a little bit about your um, uh, writing process itself. I mean, you talked there a little bit about sort of, you know, reading historical um, manuscripts and kind of d yeah. doing that sort of work. I mean, d do you, did you have a very different writing experience for Paper Houses than you had with... Um, you know, some of your other novels that were more rooted in kind of re real historical events of other people? Oh, that's, that's such a lovely question, because what I discovered was that I had my own archive. So whereas for novels about the 18th or 19th centuries or the Second World War, I went off to libraries and, and did lots of research, I found that in my own library at home, all these rows of paperback exercise books, which were my diaries, um... And I wasn't keeping a day-by-day -day diary. I was only writing down things that felt important or thinking about things that really mattered to me, often things that hurt or distressed me, as well as things that gave me joy. Yeah. And then there were letters from friends that I've kept. Because, you, you know, in those days, these far, far-off days, uh, there was a lot of paper around. and You kind of went scritch, scritch on paper. And now, of course, increasingly, we, we have um, computer notebooks and we may not keep all our drafts or... It's very different, I think, but I found that I had a record and I could right. go back and look at it. So it wasn't incredibly difficult to, to find the, the research material for this book. Yeah. Also, yes. there were loads and loads of, you know, wonderful old lefty magazines yeah. and feminist magazines. And I could ring friends up and I could say, well, look, according to my diary, you said this and that. And, and then you stormed out weeping. And she'd say, no, no, you stormed out weeping. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. You could have quarrels in the footnotes about what was true. <laughs> yes, great, great. I think the thing about diaries is, Virginia Woolf talked about her diary. She, I think she wrote it as a relaxation, as an experiment, as an exercise. And she said she had this image of a great desk and that you just sort of fling your diary into it day by day, month by month. And then you'd come back to it in years past and you'd find that it had perhaps coalesced into something that made a story or told a tale or witnessed history and that you could quite like. And I think you're just being extremely modest, as so many women often are, about whether your life is important or not. Because biography, when it began, was definitely something that men did. Um, it wasn't until much later in the history of biographies and autobiographies being written that women got a place in that tradition. And our lives are so different from those of great heroic men. I mean, nowadays, I think we all feel non-heroic and ordinary, and that's, there's been a great levelling, which is wonderful. But you have to be, I think, quite cheeky to say, my life is worth telling other people about. My diaries are interesting enough to draw upon. So I think I did something quite arrogant and quite cheeky in saying, I can use my diaries, because all they are is terribly badly written 
screams of anguish a lot of the time. I mean, they're not, you know, beautiful prose. So they're quite boring to anyone but me, and I wouldn't let anyone read them. They're all going to be burnt. <laughs> I'll maybe sell them to the British Library if they want them, but they won't. do some fakes for the British Library. <laughs> yeah, that's and, it. Uh, that's a very yeah. good idea. Yeah, they'd never know. They've got loads of money. <laughs> I just don't believe anyone's diaries are of themselves dull. I think it's what you do with them that matters. And it's the same with anyone's life and anyone's feelings. We're all brought up in Britain to be so modest and sort of, oh, I mustn't show off. And, oh, Actually, everyone's life is fascinating. And I wrote a novel called Mrs Noah's Diary. And I imagined this archive on the ark and it would have a book written by everybody in the world because everyone's got a story to tell. And I know that. You know that. Your diaries are not dull. Well, then you make it up. <laughs> I think you'd make it up. <laughs> yes, there's a question up here. Um, I really enjoyed reading your book, but one of the uh, questions that I had was, how did you select what you chose to write about? Was everyone able to hear that question? Um, what, what, what did Michelle choose to put in the book? I mean, it is a lovely question, isn't it? Because if you write a memoir, I think you could tell so many different stories. And you do, I think. I mean, when I was 20, I told a different story to when I was 30, 40, 50, and now 60. So um, I realised I wanted to write about houses because I've always been interested in them. And I'd always been homeless. And I realised that the story of this memoir was a story about being homeless. In a way, voluntarily so. I chose not to live the middle-class existence that had opened up for me because I'd been lucky enough to have a university career and get a degree. And I actually did a training as a librarian. And I could have gone off and got a job as a librarian and eventually got a mortgage and done that but I didn't I chose to be a revolutionary and an artist and live in communes and be very poor and therefore didn't have any money at all couldn't even pay rents I mean I always lived in houses where someone else owned the house and we paid minimal rents because we were painting the house or I was living in a semi-squat or someone took pity on me so I think the story it's a very deep story for me it's about feeling homeless and why that should have been so because it wasn't just about money and wanting to be a writer. It was about something quite deep, about feeling cast out from my family and that I didn't belong in their vision of um, the middle-class dream and what a daughter should be like. But as well as houses, which I've always written about in my novels, and I do think houses are wonderful as symbols because they symbolise, apart from anything else, some kind of maternal body, I wanted to write about the streets that link houses because all my life, as well as being homeless but loving houses and having a room. I've loved wandering in the streets and talking to people. So I conceived the book initially um, as a sequence of alternating chapters. There'd be a chapter about a particular house I'd lived in temporarily and then there'd be a chapter about the streets which led me to the next house. And my editor thought that was just too difficult and complicated and she didn't like the flaneuring bits. They were all a bit too difficult um but so I had to kind of put the flaneuring bits into the chapters about houses but I realized that was the real story I was trying to tell about what does it mean to feel homeless and I mean I know I've had a very privileged life I'm not a 
homeless person in the way that some people are. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to suggest that I'm less than privileged having had that university education, but when you opt for the life of an artist, you, you don't tend to opt for making pots of money. So um, I was trying to kind of look at that, really. And I think having decided on that, uh, I left stuff out because it didn't fit that particular arc of story. I was also forced to leave a lot out by the, um, the lawyers. Uh, the privacy laws have got very tightened up ever since um, that supermodel was seen coming out of a, a, a clinic for people who'd been drinking too much and her privacy was invaded and that, that sort of set a, a template for how other people could write. So some of the juiciest stories, alas, have to, had to be left out. I was really, really, really annoyed about that because a lot of the juiciest stories mock myself. I mean, they're, they're not necessarily other people's expense, but... Um, while homeless and being a starving artist, you do have a very good time as well and <laughs> many picaresque adventures. <laughs> I was very cross, I had to leave them out. So I, I felt uh, censored to some extent by external forces, not just internal ones. <laughs> do you want a taste? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd, there was a really funny experience one night. I'd been seeing this bloke for two years and... Um, he was very charismatic and devastating, and I was madly in love with him. And he was unsuitable in every way, and basically he didn't really want a lover who loved him too much. Has anyone ever else had this experience? No, no. <laughs> anyway, one night he arrived in bed with this little plastic spider he'd bought from a sex shop, and he wanted to try fucking me with the spider fixed on the end of his penis. Um, but before that... Um, I'd, I'd just written a chapter on spirituality for a Virago anthology and he'd asked me to read it to him. So there was I reading this chapter on my spiritual autobiography and then he said, oh God, that's so boring and stuck this spider on his penis and said, now let's go for it. So those kinds of things, my life is full of those kinds of <laughs> contradictions and strange encounters. And in the morning I said to him, look, you know, I'm trying to put body and soul together. That's my whole quest as an artist. And plastic spiders, it's not really moi. Sorry. <laughs> and I left him. Um, I wasn't allowed to put that story in the book because people might have worked out who it was, you know. <laughs> but I think that mocks myself as much as him. I mean, honestly, how ridiculous. <laughs> I was intrigued when you started out by saying, uh, you said that uh, your diaries, uh, you, didn't, you wouldn't want anyone else to read them. I just wonder how it felt when uh, an editor comes along and says, I think we should do your memoirs, and whether it's, it, it was a journey that you'd ever planned to do, um, to go, go there anyway, uh, or do you feel that you were pushed into it in some respect? I think it was um, something I'd never thought of doing, although I had actually in the 80s, I wrote a very short memoir that nobody realised it was a memoir because I published it at the end of a book of short stories and I thought everyone would realise it was a memoir but nobody did. It's called Une Glossaire, a glossary and it's about my French childhood and I took just words in French that meant a lot to me and then I wrote little entries about them. So I found a form that I really, really loved actually and I wrote about my French childhood very honestly but again, you know, being quite careful to shield people who would have been hurt uh, and I thought, well, that's it. I'll never write another memoir. Childhood is what interests me. So when Lenny at Virago said, have a go at writing a memoir, I was quite taken aback. And she just said, well, I think you're someone who'd write 
perhaps an interesting one, it's a good time for memoir, have a go. And that's very much how the literary world works. I mean, you know, you listen to what your publisher says. So I thought, yeah, I'll give it a whirl. But obviously, <laughs> there are people you're not going to speak about and there are things you're not going to say because you are feeling very protective of people you've loved or love who are alive. So, for example, I don't write about my family. Uh, my mother was still alive when I wrote the book. And on her deathbed, she had it on the bed and she'd pat it and she'd say, oh, I'm not going to read this. I think I'll hate this book. Every single time I went to see her while she was dying, so, oh, I don't think I like this book. I think I'll hate this book. So it became a kind of joke, you know, because she'd hated all my novels anyway. So she had to keep going to the end, hating my books. <laughs> but I think, you know, you do feel um, you don't want to abuse people's trust and you don't want to expose or exploit or harm people. On the other hand, I think this is a very feminist idea, really, that trying to speak your own truth, you're connecting to other people's truths. And you're not just kind of saying, look at me, look at me. You're, you're sort of saying, no, look, I'm one of a generation. And the personal is the political. And if one woman's struggling away, having problems around love and sex and homelessness and trying to write, then this could just speak to other people. So I think that's perhaps the reason you feel able to write a memoir. It's, it's not just showing off. Yeah, I'm really interested by that because I think that's come back, that idea, with great force recently that we seem to be in a kind of 1950s ideological state about uh, novels and writing and reading generally. In fact, if you look at the history of women writing about the domestic, what you discover is that women are writing about murder, money, incest, lust, very, very dangerous places. The domestic interior has always been a very dangerous place for women and for children. It's, you know, it's where rape, paedophilia, beatings, etc. go on. It's also, of course, where women can become uh, monstrous mothers if they so feel driven to it. And, and what I loved was simply that, as a very ardent and active reader, I discovered the Gothic tradition and uh, discovered that women loved writing about houses simply because they are very dodgy places. And what's fun about that kind of 1950s notion of the domestic that certain kinds of critic love to trash women for writing about is that actually you, you kind of take the lid off the doll's house and whoosh. And that's what feminism in the 70s was all about, was opening up the doll's house and seeing what really, really went on inside houses, the hunger of women. Um, the desire of women, the anger and rage of women, uh, the bad behaviour of, of women, let alone male violence, etc., etc. So I feel I will not be silenced by what I call silly bourgeois critics who say, oh, women write about houses and that just proves how banal women are and how small their imaginations are and how pathetic they are generally. Buh. I think no on the opposite opposite hand, I will continue to write about houses, but houses have histories. Houses are in streets. Streets are in cities. And my whole aesthetic is about not being confined by the feminine. I want to explore it, but I don't feel defined by it. I'm very happy to be called a woman writer, but that to me means subversive, questioning, 
you know, kicking. Um, I'm very happy to have a masculine side, so-called, that wants to write about people in the street, that indeed writes about men, that imagines I, I'm a man. I mean, I enjoy doing that very much. But I think if you start with the house, that's absolutely fine. Um, of course, more and more these days, what's wonderful is very few of us live in houses. We tend to live in flats. So the house perhaps has begun to take on a sort of extra Gothic glow for lots of, certainly for young people. Um, but I still think the house is a great symbol. Do, I mean, do, just sort of following on from that, you, I mean, do you have any feelings about um, some of the sort of canonical male writers that hugely idealise the domestic space, like, like Dickens, for example, mm. where... His houses, even mm. though, you know, terrible things go on there, you can always sort of escape to an, a nicer house. I mean, yes. I'm thinking, for example, of, of Bleak House, where yes. they eventually end up somewhere very sort of idyllic yeah. for, for both the men and women characters. Well, funnily enough, Charlotte Bronte got very annoyed with that particular novel, and she, um, she let off great rockets in a letter, I forget to whom, about uh, Esther Summerson. Dickens, one of, one of Dickens' narrators in that novel, she, she's sort of pretty twiddle-twaddle. And Charlotte Bronte, of course, is a good inheritor of the Gothic. Her houses are very dangerous, aren't they? I mean, they're full of impossible forbidden desire and ghosts and uh, notions around, around incest and so on. I, I can't be going on with, with Dickens' houses. I, I kind of salute his stories about young men with their way to make in the world, and I, I love his mockery about um, capitalism in the 19th century and uh, what wrecks we're all heading towards. I mean, I th you know, he's obviously a, a genius novelist, but his, his notions of the domestic seem very conventional and of his time to me. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I'm just taking this uh, notion of house, and your book is called Paper Houses. I mean, the metaphor is, is about you living, that, that books are places to live in. Yeah, I mean, because I love books, I always bought a lot. I mean, I trained as a librarian, as I told you, and I didn't go on to practice that profession because I, I preferred the freelance Grub Street life of just, I don't know, the underground press and grubbing about in London trying to write. But I always bought books, and wherever I was, I had a a wall of books and then when I would become homeless I had to sell them and get rid of them which was always tragic and traumatic and go on to the next house and buy more books often secondhand you know from wonderful secondhand bookshops in London or secondhand book barrows like on Farringdon Road and I suppose because I kept having to lose my libraries I began to have a notion of the paper house as simply this imaginary space if you were reading a book you were living inside the book a bookworm, you know, you're going munch, 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 reading away. A paper house also became the very fragile shelters I lived in that I was always having to leave. So a house, it's like the three little pigs, you know, a house made of wood or straw or paper. I didn't feel I was living in a house of brick ever. And I acknowledge I had my own reasons always for fleeing houses. I mean, I had such mixed, ambivalent feelings about houses. But then I became aware that my image of the writer was somebody who, who built and lived in her own paper house, that that's what writing meant. And it is flimsy because you, you write a novel and you're, you're dwelling in it and then you, you let go of it. If you're lucky enough for it to be published, it, it goes away into the world and it's, it's gone, so your paper house has vanished. 
But I used to feel I had this little paper house in my pocket, I think. And that at my worst times, um, I could somehow take out this little scrunched up bit of paper and it would expand magically. And I think Charlotte Bronte has a, an image like that somewhere about a, a magical tent that expands and you can kind of live in it temporarily. And I noticed having had this image, I think from the early 1980s, Margaret Atwood recently published a lovely book. Isn't it called The Tent or something? And she has a similar notion of, of the book as this kind of temporary magical thing that you erect for yourself and live within. So the paper house for me is very resonant. Um, it, it still resonates as an image, yeah. I mean, does, does that affect um, your, your decision to kind of just c continue to write poetry and short stories and novels? Because, I mean, I noticed that you have sort of um, gone into films recently as well. I wonder whether you'd... I mean, this would make a great uh, film, wouldn't it? It would, if only there were a film director in the audience. Um, <laughs> tell your friends. I think it would make a lovely film. And I think Julie Christie could play a part ah. in it somewhere. <laughs> um, not sure about... Angelina Jolie, but, you know, okay. we could find her a bit part. She could be on the shortlist. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think what I've decided is... Um, it's a very strange world we live in, the literary world at the moment, because it's, it's increasingly dominated by the values of the market, so that if you, if you kind of teach in a university or hang around a university, or indeed read reviews or are a serious reader or belong to a book club, or love just, you know, buying books, reading books, talking to your friends. You have a notion of aesthetic value, don't you? you? You talk about whether you think a book is any good or not, and you argue for that. I mean, we are all given this kind of relativism, where we're supposed to sort of say, oh, well, that's just my taste, and blah. But actually, those of us who are passionate about books, I think we bash through that, and we say, it's just not enough to say, I like it, you don't like it, end of discussion. You argue for what you like and you argue for what you don't like. And that's completely wonderful. So I think books are very live and well. On the other hand, the literary world is now dominated by the values of the market, which are simply financial ones. Um, is this book going to make pots and pots of money for the publisher or not? And whereas in the olden days, a publisher might subsidise literary novels to some extent from the sales and profits of popular, wonderful novels... Uh, that's no longer the case. Every novel has to earn its way in the marketplace. So it's a very, very tough marketplace in which to survive as a writer. And although I continue to write and I'm fortunate to continue to have a publisher and an agent, increasingly I'm finding that where I feel freest as a writer is on the edges. So I've been working with artists and doing, I think I've done four artist books to date, where I can write the kind of things I want to write with an artist. And, you know, these books will perhaps sell 500 copies max. Um, you'd have to get them on Amazon or in the library. Well, that's, that's lovely. I'm not bothered about making money out of them somehow. And I love writing weird little tiny film scripts for a friend for nothing, if that'll help someone make a film. Um, and I send poems to friends that maybe never will get published. And increasingly, I think I'm going back to the kind of climate I lived in in the 70s as a very young writer, where we used to do a lot of self-publishing. 
Um, and we didn't think it was shameful. It wasn't called vanity publishing. For us, it was a radical and revolutionary act that we knew that the sort of what we called the bourgeois world. You know, we had these wonderful <laughs> words, the bourgeois world. It did not want our work. So off we went to Spare Rib, the, the women's feminist magazine, and they lent us their offices and their design studio, and we made our books there for nothing. And then we flogged them round gigs. You know, we just went to rock gigs and gave readings in pubs and flogged our books. And I think lots of young people are doing that today. I mean, it's, um, it's like fanzines, or mm. perhaps it's happening increasingly on the internet, of course. But I feel very comfortable in that world of alternative writing and alternative publishing, where in a way you're, you're doing it for love and not just to earn a living or indeed to make money. Um, I have to think about earning a living, but if I only thought about earning a living and what my publishers considered good commercial fiction, I think I'd go and commit suicide tomorrow, quite honestly. <laughs> I mean, does, does the online publishing world worry you in that it, it doesn't give you the sort of materiality of the book, it doesn't give you mm. that sort of space to, to enter and dwell within? Mm. I think if e-books became really, really beautifully designed and, you know, gorgeous things to hold, I'm... I'm Yes. going to love them. They're obviously getting better and better all the time. So although I think I'm a really terribly old-fashioned, possibly reactionary person with my love of paper and print, I really hope I'm not. I mean, I'm really trying to kind of not be. I think things are going two ways, and perhaps you can straddle it, that perhaps on the one hand you can just love surfing the internet and reading in that kind of hopping about way, and you can love flash fiction and, um, and all of that. And then you could also perhaps keep loving books that perhaps now will have to be more and more beautifully made, you know, like really elegant and really chic, the kind of thing that you'd want to be seen with. Because that's what I'm noticing um, as, I, as I walk about the cities I walk about in, that there's a certain kind of good-looking book people are quite not liking to kind of flash. Mm. Um, whereas kind of manky old badly designed hardbacks costing too much money nobody carries around and flashes so this this sort of european design that's come in more and more serpent's tail was one of the publishers who initiated it just things like very nice flaps and you yeah. know very very beautiful covers and i know even stitch not just bound with glue i think that's the future of the book alongside right. the ebook and i think that could be glorious that's interesting because i noticed that uh, there's a lot of sort of notebooks that are stitched like that too. Yeah. And there does seem to be a slight renaissance of the fountain pen as well. There seems to be sort of a lot more interest mm. in nice pens and not just mm. getting a nice computer, but having your nice pen as well. And not having to say either or. I mean, maybe yes, that's what absolutely. it's about, is you can have both. Yeah. I must say, one of the things that's really amazing when I teach creative writing from time to time is we're all in a workshop group and... I give the students an exercise and they start to write. And you hear this sound, it's going scritch, 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 scritch. And it's pen, ink, paper. And of course, a lot of the time, we're just writing straight onto laptops and there's no sound apart from a little tiny tinkle. And it is, it's, I suppose it's still close to drawing. Obviously, increasingly, you can draw onto the computer. But um, there's something about the hand, the body, the brain. I think it's still got a place for writing. And I think for reading, there's a place for that bodily contact. But I think the e-book is going to become more and more reader-friendly yes. and make us all feel very happy. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. I think, I think we've kept you quite a long time, but I wonder if we've just got time for one more question, if anyone would like to ask. Can I just ask? Uh, absolutely. 
<laughs> I'm afraid I succumbed. Um, I was very, very fortunate in 1993. I won a literary prize. I won 10,000 quid. And I ran off to France, where my mother comes from. And in those days, you could actually buy a house for 10,000 quid. I bought a house. And I remember that it was like kind of a wad of used notes and kind of counting them out. And I had a, a wee house, like a shoebox, and I've still got it. And I'm very happy there. And I've, I've revealed to my... I have a badge. I've come out as, you know, materialistic, home-loving, house-owning person. And I have a garden. And... Um, I absolutely adore that stability. And I don't... It's funny, you know, about ownership. Now I own that little place, I know that really all it means is I'm allowed to live here while I'm alive and other people will live here after me as they lived here before me. Because one of the lovely things about it, it's, it's a little old, very plain, tiny farmhouse, like a shoebox. And all the neighbours came to see me when I first bought it and they'd say, I was born in that corner and I was born in that corner and my grandfather took the sacks of grain up to the loft and my grandmother helped bring the cows in and you get this sense of the house has been lived in and it will be lived in again when I'm dead and perhaps that's what ownership means to me now is that you inhabit a, a continuity but I am a house owner and uh, I had to retract some of the uh, fiery statements I'd made in my youth but property is theft whoops a daisy <laughs> yes <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, that was so wonderful. Thanks so much. I think we've learned a lot about your writing and also a few unusual sex tips as well, which uh, <laughs> will remain within this room, perhaps. Um, but before, before we thank Michelle, I would just like to um, advertise a couple of more events uh, that are happening next week. Um, on Monday night, we're uh, very happy to have the poet um, Mark Doty here to speak to us. And there's some flyers at the back if you'd like to... Um, get some more information. And then next Wednesday evening, we have uh, Blake Morrison um, coming to speak. But for now, can I just thank Michelle for giving us such a great start to uh, Writers at Warwick. Thank, thank you very much. Now, if you would like to uh, have Michelle uh, sign a copy of uh, Paper Houses or any of her other books, there are some on sale just outside. Uh, Warwick Bookshop is also open. And uh, if you do have any questions you'd just like to ask Michelle in private. Um, <laughs> no sex Not about spiders. <laughs> no spiders. Um, there are some books um, outside. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. You were a really beautiful chairperson. Oh, thank, you much. Thank, you. <laughs> thank you very much. This was recorded as part of the Writers at Warwick series at Warwick Arts Centre. For more information, please visit www.warwickartscentre.co.uk.